ARIA Code is produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera, New York's premier opera company. Learn more and explore the Met's full season lineup at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera, all the stories on one stage. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Here's this guy who is so sure that he's finally found the lever, the thing that would open this door. And, of course, it's not even a lever. It's nothing. It's just wine, but he doesn't know. From WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, this is Aria Code. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. So Spear is a sigh, but it's not a sigh of anguish. It's a sigh of love. Every episode, we do a deep dive into a single aria so we can hear it in a whole new way. Today, it's Una Furtiva Lagrima from Donizetti's L'Elysir d'Amore. The desire for connection and for love was strong enough to make me willing to risk Have you ever thought about how much easier dating would be if you could just drink a little love potion and suddenly become irresistible to that person you had your eye on? Love potions have been a conceit of stories from the Middle Ages all the way to the rom-coms we stream from our couches. But they're not just the stuff of fiction. People have tried them out in real life, too. And let me tell you, it gets pretty wild. Lizard necks, viper's blood... Toxic beetles and uh, toenails are just some of the ingredients that have been crushed, cooked, and corked in the name of romance. And cakes have been made with the literal sweat and blood of hopeful lovers. They were called, wait for it, sweaty cakes. And of course, there's the age-old and way more palatable elixir that still has a powerful effect on cordon couples. A nice bottle of wine. Fortunately, that's the kind of potion we're talking about today. L'Elysir d'Amore, or The Elixir of Love, by Gaetano Donizetti, tells the story of the lovesick tenor Nemorino, who pines away for the self-possessed and beautiful Adina. Adina's not interested, or so she tells him over and over again. But Nemorino's determined to win her heart, so he spends all of his money on a supposed love potion, really just wine, from a traveling snake oil salesman. Nemorino drinks. He plays it cool. He waits for signs that Adina's caught in the potion's spell. But instead, she agrees to marry a sergeant in the army that's arrived in their village. Nemorino is so desperate that he joins the army himself just to make some more money to buy another bottle of that potion. When Adina learns what he was willing to give up for her, she cries a single furtive tear. Una furtiva lagrima. This tear is Nemorino's sign that she loves him. It's also his inspiration to sing one of the most recognizable and heartbreakingly glorious arias in the history of opera. It's a short and simple song that's inspired many, many tears. And we've got a great team of guests to tell us why. Over the course of his career, spanning more than 30 years and counting, tenor Matthew Polanzani has sung the role of Nemorino on opera stages around the world. But his life as a musician started in his childhood living room. 
Music has been a huge part of my family history. My parents both sang in barbershop choirs and barbershop quartets, and my grandfather was a very famous and well-known barbershopper. We sang all the time in the house, singing around with guitars and singing Beatles songs and things like that. Those are always really fun times. Fred Plotkin is the author of Opera 101, a complete guide to learning and loving opera, and he's a proud Donizetti fanboy. I feel that Donizetti is one of the most undervalued of all opera composers. He's loved and admired for just a few operas, but the range of his output, the genius, and above all, the psychological insight that he brings to his characters. I think only Mozart before him brought so much psychology. Next up, Lane Doggett, a French professor at St. Mary's College of Maryland and author of the book Love Cures, Healing and Love Magic in Old French Romance. She knows more than a little about the intersection of love and magic. I published primarily on 12th and 13th century French medieval texts, a genre in French known as romance, the stories of love, chivalric adventure, elements of the marvelous, so all kinds of magic is brought in. And finally, we have Judith Fetterly, a former professor, master gardener, and writer. Judith's personal love story involving a little bit of elixir was featured in the New York Times Modern Love column in 2021. It's called, Was She Just Another Nicely Packaged Pain Delivery System? I had been badly damaged by a partner of 17 plus years. She basically dumped me for another younger woman I was in my 60s, and I was really a wreck. How could I trust myself to pick a partner since I had done so badly the last time? Let's find out. Here's Una Fertiva Lagrima from Donizetti's L'Elisir d'Amore. L'Elisir d'Amore, the elixir of love, is a straightforward story of boy loves girl, girl ignores boy, then she notices him, then they squabble, feign indifference to one another, but they ultimately fall in love and they marry. It's been said that there are only two themes in literature, love and power. Love shows up everywhere because it is a primal emotion that drives much human action and then love can result in social structures through marriage, family, other institutions that not only are about the individual, but also about society. So people are fascinated by stories of love. It was about four years after this dumping event, and I'd had a number of dates, and they were all disastrous. So I had kind of given up all of that. And I had a friend, and she had retired, and she was not flourishing. So I thought, well, if we did something together, I could get her out of the house, I could get her interested, I knew she liked wine. I saw this class being offered at the Bethlehem High School on wine. So I said, I'm gonna sign us up for this. That's when this whole drama around Finding Sarah began. Nemorino is a lovesick young man who doesn't have a lot of money. Who's kind of a bumpkin. Doesn't even really have a job, but he's got a deep and abiding interest 
in this woman called Adina. Adina is a landowner. She's wealthier because of the land, and she has power. She's a smart and talented woman and is going places. She's in charge of the town for all intents and purposes. She's a powerful and important figure. The first class on red wine, I went to the class alone. So I parked in a different place than I usually park, and I went into this building that was a maze of corridors and doors, and I was completely lost. I had no idea where this wine class was. And then I looked down the hall, and here came this gorgeous woman, beautifully dressed. She had on this wonderful uh, long raincoat, rose beige color, beautifully tailored. She was striding very purposefully down the hall, and I thought to myself, ah, she is going to the wine class. She is elegant. She is ready to discuss the qualities and beauties of red wine. We meet Nemorino, and he's singing an aria about how beautiful Adina is and what an idiot he is and why he can't even express to her why she's important to him. And we're lucky enough for him to have overheard her reading a story about Tristan and Isolde and how this potion has caused their love to bloom. The potion is created by Isolde's mother. She is the queen of Ireland, and it is to help facilitate the wedding night of her daughter, Princess Isolde, in an arranged marriage to King Mark of Cornwall to cement the peace between these two small kingdoms. Isolde will go there. She has no choice in this matter. And Isolde's mother prepares a potion, gives a potion to the lady-in-waiting and says, on the wedding night, serve this wine to them. This will cause them to fall in love. I think that Donizetti understood the mythological appeal of Tristan and Isolde, of potions as a device to put people to sleep, to wake people up, to make you not recognize the person that you've known all your life. And so I did approach her and I said, are you by any chance going to the wine class? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, can you direct me to the wine class? And she did so. And then I recognized her. She was someone I had met many, many, many years ago through a mutual acquaintance. And she recognized me. This man arrives in town whose name is Dr. Dulcamara. He's a real charlatan. A snake oil salesman. He sells potions of all types. He purports to have every kind of solution for every problem that you have, from gout to lack of love. Anything you need, he has it in that bottle. Nemorino, recalling the story of Tristan and Isolde, decides to ask him if he might happen to sell this crazy potion that would ignite the flame between Nemorino and Adina. Of course, all it is is Bordeaux. Cheap Bordeaux at that. 
Dr. Dulcamata is kind of like the Wizard of Oz with Bordeaux wine. In my little town, there is a wonderful independent wine store run by an independent provider. And he allowed the class to come down, and he provided wine for us to taste. It was absolutely marvelous. So Sarah and I were both there, and we began talking. We discovered that we both loved red wine, of course, which (laughs) is indeed an elixir, and that we loved opera, and that we loved late-night movies. And we just kind of began to reconnect. So on the voyage to Cornwall, one day the ship puts ashore and all of the other people leave the ship. So you have Tristan Isolde left on the ship. They find the potion and they drink it. The text has told us they have had a lot of time together. And also that they're a well-matched couple. They're essentially the same age. They are the same level of wealth. And they have the same levels of attractiveness. So they drink the thing that lowers the inhibitions and causes a sense of euphoria. And the next thing you know, they have consummated their passion. So in answer to the question, can a potion cause people to fall in love, my answer is no, but it will facilitate the process if the couple who drinks the potion is predisposed to falling in love in the first place. Dr. Dulcamata tells Namorino that it takes 24 hours for the potion to take effect, by which point, by the way, the doctor will be gone. But Nemorino is not quick enough (laughs) to have understood it. Here's this guy who is so sure that he's finally found the lever, the thing that would open this door. And, of course, it's not even a lever. It's nothing. It's just wine, but he doesn't know. And what happens, of course, is he gets drunk and a little drunker and a little drunker. What I love in his music is the way you can hear the warmth of the potion, which is really just Bordeaux, entering the system of Nemorino and the way he gradually becomes intoxicated. Ebro is a wonderful Italian word because it means filled with, but in this case, filled with an intoxicant. A soldier comes into town whose name is Belcore, and he absolutely has eyes for Adina, which works up Nemorino to no end. All he's saying is like, all he needs is a little bit of his courage. Couldn't you just let me have some of that love? Let me have some of that. We did begin to do many things together. We started going to late night movies, and then we would go out, you know, we would talk about them afterwards. There was this one time when we were meeting for coffee, and I thought I saw her coming, and then it wasn't her, and my heart fell, and I thought, oh dear, oh dear. (laughs) This is a sign, this is an indication that I've got more than a casual interest in this person, because when she finally showed up, I was overjoyed. When we talk about falling in love, Starting in antique literature, we have the figure of Cupid, who later becomes known in the Middle Ages as simply the god of love, who comes in and shoots you with an arrow, which enters 
your eye travels to your heart. It is an external force that hits you. You react to it. You are captured by it. In fact, you can't stop it. So there's already an idea that to fall in love is to lose control. When Namorino hears Adina agree to marry Belcore, she says, we'll do it in six days. He's ecstatic because all he needs is one day and all of a sudden the love will bloom inside of her. But when she sees how happy he is about her getting married in six days, she thinks, that's not good. That's not it. That's not at all what I was going for. I'm trying to teach him a lesson and he's excited. Fine, let's get married today. Which breaks him. And that spurs him to do something really crazy. We began to talk in a slightly more intimate way than we had before about past relationships and so forth. And at one point I asked her, I said, well, who would you say has been the love of your life? And Sarah did one of her wonderful scrunching up of faces and kind of laughing. And she said, well, perhaps I would say my cat, Bo. And I wanted to say, I think I might I might be able to displace Bo in your affections if you would try me. But, of course, I didn't say that. But it was the closest I came to ever actually bursting out and saying, well, what about me? <laughs> would, would you want to try me? Namorino, lovesick, spent all of his money buying that potion. The only way for him to get more money is to enlist in the army for Belcore so that he will get money to then buy another round of the potion to try to attract Adina. Which is an idiot thing to do because he's going to be stuck in the army, but he's not thinking of these things. It's love or bust for this guy. And in the meanwhile, we find out that his uncle has died and left him a fortune. So Nemorino's a rich man, but he doesn't know. They are now a well-matched couple, just like Tristan and Isolde. They have the same level of wealth, and in all these stories, all the men are beautiful and all the women are too. So the society around them will admire this pairing. Adina finds out that he's agreed to go into the army, and this she can't live with. She can't live with the idea of Namorino setting foot on a battlefield or leaving his town or leaving her even. And she catches a glimpse of what the truth is in his heart. And she's very touched by that and sheds a tear. And Namorino sees it. So the furtive tear gives him the sign that he should persist because she does, in fact, love him. And it is a liquid, so you could say it has the effect of a love potion. One of the beautiful things about Una Fortiva Lagrima is the way it starts. It's the music before he sings that really sets the stage for everything that follows. The instrumentation is so unusual. It's a harp, it's strings played pizzicato, and a bassoon. What a weird but beautiful combination of, of sounds. Strings played pizzicato basically means they're being plucked. And to me, it sounds like raindrops, not teardrops. 
The bassoon has kind of a forlorn and lonely quality to it. Introverted in a way, and so it sets up the tone for Nemorino's rumination about what he's just seen and how to understand what it means. It's a nuanced and rather broad range of emotions because he's singing not just about himself, but about Adina, the woman he loves, who he believes finally loves him. And really, it's quite a simple melody that Donizetti wrote, but my feeling is that the simple melodies often say with greater clarity exactly what the heart is feeling, especially as he's able to pare away everything else and focus in just on that tear. A simple melody that cleaves the heart open, and, and in this case, it's a really, it's a really sharp knife. So there were the kind of conflicting forces, the growing attraction and the delight in our growing relationship and our growing attraction, then the romantic excitement that comes with that. And up against that came this other force of I'm damaged goods, I don't trust myself, I don't trust anybody else, this is impossible. But (laughs) luckily, I suppose, the... um, the desire for connection and for love was strong enough to hold those other forces at bay and make me willing to risk. (laughs) The risk was on both sides. If I was accepted, there was huge risk there. And if I was rejected, there was risk there. So we get the opening with this beautiful bassoon and the harp playing in an arpeggio underneath. And then Nemorino comes in and he starts the aria singing the exact same melody. A furtive tear sprang forth from her eye. It's as if Nemorino, through the elixir that he's consumed, suddenly finds his poetic moment in ways that he certainly does not have in the rest of the opera. A furtive tear, you would not say furtive if you were a rustic, perhaps illiterate farm worker. As Nemorino moves through the thought process of wondering what the tear could mean, it occurs to him that there's only one answer, and the answer is she loves him. When you reach this long F, we leave B-flat minor, and when he arrives, he's singing the same note. But all of a sudden, we're in major. He says, she loves me, I see it, I see it. The sun comes out. (laughs) I mean, it's such a joyful moment, actually. This feeling of knowledge of everything that you've been hoping for. Donizetti's way of exploding Nemorino's heart is to switch from B-flat minor to D-flat major. 
I mean, it's the first time he has seen her absolutely open and bare. Part of the story is her realizing that she does, in fact, love Nimarino. But what's important for Adina is not simply that she fall in love, but the bigger idea of the societal function of marriage, which is that you marry, you have children, and they inherit your property. Because without that, even in the 19th century, you have instability. She is a property owner. She needs to marry. My friend finally said, one of you's got to do something. And so I said, all right, I'll do something. And I started to write this letter, what I call my letter of intent. And then I rewrote it. You know, I do it through this agonizing process of trying every single word had to be very carefully couched so that it gave Sarah a graceful out if she wasn't interested and so that it would preserve our friendship. So I think it's very easy for modern audiences to think of marriage as just an individual choice and to forget that for many, many centuries, in fact, the marriages were almost always arranged, usually by the fathers. So women, in many cases, did not have a voice. Women's desire can be overlooked or never even thought of. But it's not an arranged marriage. She, Adina, gets to choose. The fact that she's a female property owner and the fact that she has choice in marriage are really important for the story. And then, of course, he goes back to minor. It's him dropping back into a ruminative and thoughtful state. He starts thinking about the things that he would like to have happen and how he'd like to have his breath intermingled with hers and he'd like to feel the beat of her heart. I miei sospir confondere per poco ai suoi sospir. Sospir is a sigh, but it's not a sigh of anguish. It's a sigh of love. And it's so beautifully carried in that music. I palpiti, I palpiti sentir palpiti, it's heartbeat. Most of this aria is about a legato, a stringing together of vowels. However, i palpiti sentir are meant to be the moments where it's slightly chopped up to reflect the palpiti, the heartbeat, the heartbeat. And you hear that in Donizetti's music. Follow the words is what Donizetti truly understood. I finally got this letter done, and I was going to Milwaukee to visit my brother. Probably in a sort of cowardly way, I thought, I'll drop this letter off before I leave, because then if she doesn't respond, we won't have to face each other. We'll have time to regroup at a distance. So I put the letter in the mail, and then I got on the plane. Adina has a certain amount of power. That kind of power comes with responsibility. But she also is able to have a voice. She gets to pick who she wants to love. And she also has the ability to have a say 
in how her life works out. I was under a great deal of stress, though. I mean, I had no idea what Sarah was going to say, and I was really just massively stressed out. So I thought, well, I'll do my yoga stretches. And I started to do them, and something popped in my back. I learned later that I had herniated a disc. I didn't know that at the time, but I have never experienced such pain in my life. I couldn't move. The aria is a simple two-stanza aria that the same melody repeats twice. When we arrive back to major, it's interesting, we arrive at an F. But then instead of going to D-flat major, he goes to B-flat major, which is the key we start the aria in, but in major. Heaven, I could die. I could die. I could just die. Di più non chiedo. I could ask for nothing else. All he needs is just the simple knowledge. The knowledge that she loves him, the knowledge that they're going to be together. He says, yeah, if this could happen, I could die. There are so many different ways the great tenors have made the aria their own in the same notes, in the same music, in the same words. There have been French singers who sing with a certain kind of French elegance, let's call it. There have been dramatic tenors who sing it with a lot more oomph than you would ever expect. There have been rural tenors who come from agricultural backgrounds who bring a very charming rusticity because he, Nemorino, is always referred to as a rustico, a rustic guy from the country. And then you have people who fasten on the love aspect. And it's absolutely a love poem that they're singing. They're inebriated with the love that they're feeling for Adina and the sudden realization that she may feel it for him as well. Sarah came home on Friday from work, and when she came home and there was the letter, the moment she got it, she called to say, oh, she was interested too, to say yes. So I struggled to the phone, and then I explained that I had done some terrible thing to my back. But I was pretty much high on painkillers when I got the news that she was also interested. So it was kind of a double high at that moment. As Nemorino reaches the end of the aria, in good bel canto tradition, he gets the opportunity to drop a cadenza on the, <laughs> on the end of the piece. A cadenza is generally the kind of thing that would be used to show off a vocal moment. In this particular case, the cadenza that Donizetti wrote is largely the cadenza that most tenors sing, with a little minor variation where instead of the top note being a G, the top note is an A. Once we pass that moment, we get a little echo of the aria where he says, Si può morire. He goes, Major. And he's saying, I could die. Then he goes, Minor.
d'amour, of love. <laughs> yeah, that's really the thrust to the whole thing, isn't it? Man, I could die of love. What a beautiful idea. When the bassoon comes back at the end, it plays first a little melody in major, and then it plays it in minor. But we end up in B-flat major at the end, and really, the sun is out and shining on him. You can die from love. It sounds a bit wistful, but it ends very happily because he understands that he and Adina do have a future. I think that Donizetti, despite his great gift at comedy, was at core a very tragic figure and understood how to present that. Nemorino's world at the very beginning is nothing but tragedy and, and woe. And so by setting it in the minor key, in the tragic key, Donizetti allows himself and also allows his character to suddenly open when we see a crack of sunshine. And suddenly these beautiful tenor voices become sunny. That's what Donizetti made as a gift to tenors. After all these years of singing this role, I cannot say that I feel a lot differently about who this guy is. I feel like I knew who he was in the beginning, and I know who he is now. And when I get to Una Furtiva Lagrima, I always arrive in a happy place. Not just because of what he's speaking about, but because the melody and the music is so beautiful that even after 23 years, I still have a strong attachment not just to the aria, but to the guy. I love the guy for his consistency and for his honesty and for his openness to the truth. Literature has so many different ways that it intersects with life, and it does so at its best with these eternal questions of what is love? Why do we fall in love? And of course, there's other topics too, power, death, those kinds of different things. But the big questions of human existence show up again and again, and love is just one of the big subjects that people are perennially fascinated by. I'm about to turn 85, and we've been together almost 17 years, and the main feeling I have is one of enormous gratitude. I think it's a, a miracle to find so much love so late in life. I think it's a testament to both of us because it's not easy being in a relationship, and it gets harder the older you get. I feel so grateful that the part of me with the capacity to love is still alive. And that, for me, is such a, a form of vitality and such a connection to life. Writer Judith Federley, Professor Lane Doggett, writer Fred Plotkin, and tenor Matthew Polanzani. Decoding Una Furtiva Lagrima from Donizetti's L'Elisir d'Amore. Matthew will be back to sing it for you after the break. You're listening to Aria Code, produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera. 
visit the Met and experience an exciting mix of bold new works and timeless classics. Buy tickets, watch videos, and learn more at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera. All the stories on one stage. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. When a tenor steps on stage to sing Una Furtiva Lagrima, he knows that the audience has been waiting for this moment since the overture began. No pressure. Here's tenor Matthew Polanzani absolutely owning that moment on stage at the Metropolitan Opera.
That was tenor Matthew Polanzani winning all of our hearts with his performance of Una Furtiva Lagrima from Donizetti's L'Elisir d'Amore. That's it for this episode of Aria Code. If season four is winning your heart so far, please spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Coming up next time, it's another tearjerker. Grief is such a pure and simple emotion. It's so all-encompassing, especially in those first hours, weeks, months, years of loss. Che farò senza Euridice from Gluck's Orfeo ed Euridice. Aria Code is a co-production of WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera. The show is produced, edited, and scored by Marin Lazian. Mixing and sound design by Matt Boynton from Ultraviolet Audio and original music by Hannes Brown. I'd like to give a huge thanks to the University of North Carolina's music department and to St. Mary's College of Maryland for help recording this episode. I'm Rihanna Giddens. See you next time. No lizards or toxic beetles were harmed in the making of this podcast. I promise. (laughs) Aria Code is produced in partnership with the Metropolitan Opera, New York's premier opera company. Learn more and explore the Met's full season lineup at metopera.org. The Metropolitan Opera, all the stories on one stage.